This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. The individual is, is someone who is constituted and, and constantly reconstituted through uh, relations with others. And these mm-hmm. others can be other humans, but also other animals or spirits, etc., etc. Welcome back to the Animal Turn, everyone. This is season five, where we're focusing on animals and biosecurity. So far in the season, we've focused on concepts that seem somehow both obvious and fuzzy. So biosecurity, bioethics, invasive and feral species. And these conversations have been super interesting. And I think part of the reason for why they've been interesting is because we've been paying attention to some concepts that we take for granted. And it's important that we do that. But today we're speaking about a concept which I'm sure many of you, and I certainly have not, heard of before, and that is epidemiological individual. It is a theoretical concept that tries to capture the relational and contingent ways in which some animals are framed as problems during disease situations. And while we speak in today's episode a great deal about how the concept is useful in understanding the history of rats and the third plague pandemic, I think it is a concept that is generally really analytically useful and extremely exciting. It's really a word that will help us to understand in many ways kinds of the histories and even the contemporary ways in which animals and specific animals are caught up in disease situations. My guest today is Christos Linteris. Christos is a professor of medical anthropology at the University of St. Andrews, and his research focuses on the anthropological and historical examination of epidemics. And he has pioneered work in the field of anthropological study of zoonotic diseases. His most recent book is called Visual Plague, the Emergence of Epidemic Photography. Others include Plague, Image and Imagination from Medieval to Modern Times, as well as Plague and the City. Today, we spend a lot of time talking about a forthcoming paper of his titled In Search of Lost Fleas, Reconsidering Paul Louis Simon's Contribution to the Study of the Propagation of Plague, which is part of a much broader project that Christos is working on. And that project is called, and it's really, really cool, I encourage you to go and Google it and check it out. It's called The Global War Against the Rat and the Epistemic Emergence of Zoonosis. And that's a whole group of people that are working on and trying to understand the history of rats. So prior to Christos's interest in rats, he examined epidemic crises in China and their impact on society and governance in that country. And he is extremely interesting to talk to. He has a wealth of knowledge and his ideas and thoughts related to history as well as to disease and to how animals like rats are caught up in disease situations is fascinating to say the least. I learned so much from talking to him that my brain is all tingly and you know, I don't know if you guys know that feeling. I often have it when I'm writing. I have that moment of like, yes, yes, there's an idea happening. I had that idea, that kind of feeling of maybe there being an idea when I was speaking to Christos. And uh, I just love that feeling. And I love listening to conversations that have that. And I hope that you get kind of that excitement and that energy from, from learning a new concept too. Uh, it was really interesting and uh, I hope you enjoy Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Claudia. And it's a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast and uh, and to talk rats uh, and more <laughs> agency, plague, disease and non-disease as well. 
But yeah, I've got to say, I've learned so much from reading some of your stuff in the, the lead up to this this interview. You know, I didn't know even the idea that there was a first plague, second plague, third plague. You know, we, we kind of, the idea of plague definitely sits in my imaginary. And you can almost always mention plague or black death or something like that. And then someone says, oh, it's carried by rats. And almost invariably, someone in the group will be like, no, no, it's carried by fleas. And and then to read some of the, the work you're doing, thinking about these relationships between rats, fleas, and how that knowledge was produced is really, I thoroughly, I know the paper's not yet published. So perhaps you could tell us about that paper and when, when people might be able to access it. Sure, yes. The the paper will be published with the journal Medical History. It's going to be open access. And it is called In Search of Lost Fleas as a tribute to, to Proust, who mm-hmm. Proust himself was the son of a, of a great plague expert, Adrien Proust, who was one of the biggest uh, epidemiologists in France. Not many people are aware of that. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a... <laughs> You know, a game there with words that refer to his ancestry as well. But anyway, the paper is about Paul-Louis Simon, who is the person who is usually, well, not just credited, but celebrated as the discoverer of the fact that fleas, or fleas carried by rats, are the main or the true vector of Yersinia pestis, which is the bacterium that causes bubonic plague. If I, if I can reflect a little bit on the process of this, of how I, I came to write this, this article, I think it, it is interesting and informative, especially for early career historians, but also anthropologists who work with archival material. This paper is, is based on material I had collected many, many years ago. I had copied at the archives of the Institute Pasteur in Paris during an earlier project, which was called well, in short, visual plague or visual representations of the third plague pandemic at the University of Cambridge at the time and funded by the European Research Council. The funny thing is that I never looked at this material because I was myself so convinced by this celebratory story that in, on, the, on the 2nd of June, 1898, as the Institute Pasteur Twitter's account tells us every year, Paul-Louis Simon, who was a Pasteurian doctor, discovered the flea as the vector of the disease. And I, I told myself, although I copied them, because I, I, I'm kind of an obsessive collector in a Benjaminian <laughs> way of archives, I thought, well, why even bother reading this? You know, all sorts of historians have written about the story time and again, it's the most boring story, a heroic celebratory eureka moment. And it was only with the new project that I thought, well, look, you need to be disciplined. <laughs> you know, as a disciplined historian or a disciplined historical anthropologist has to read this material, although it's been read by so many people before you. And as I was reading this material, I just realized, and it was a real shock, a truly kind of found object in the surrealist sense even, that this experiment had failed. Mm. And no historian had had gone back to the archive to read the the laboratory notes to see that the experiment actually fa- failed and that Simon, you know, misrepresented the experiment in his famous article. And 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 this really, really got me in a way that, how, first of all, how is it possible? How is it possible that no one has scrutinized this? And then why didn't I myself look at, at this <laughs> earlier on? I had fallen into the trap of the institutional history, the cere- celebratory history. Uh, I should have known better. Now, 
this this then i think this kind of discovery of the discovery of the non-discovery leads one into a kind of trap to begin with you know i got really excited i wanted to reveal this to the world you know the the great fraud or the you know we've all been you know led astray to believe that this was a success but then i kind of calmed myself down and i said no you know this is a much more interesting and complex thing why mm-hmm. don't i do some work and situate this experiment and Simone's work within the broader epistemological, colonial, et cetera, et cetera, context. And that, the, the paper is the result of that, a, a much more, if you want, analytical approach to this failed experiment, which everyone thinks was successful. This, in the context of, of the project, which is uh, called the, the Global War Against the Rat and the Epistemic Emergence of Zoonosis, which is funded by the Wellcome Trust, made a lot of sense because in our project, and it, it's not me on this project, it's me, Mateus Alves Duarte da Silva, who works on, on rat catching, but also on sylvatic plague, and Jules uh, Scottness Brown, who works on rat proofing, and also Oliver French, who is a PhD student with a project who works on rat poisoning. We are all interested in these methods of controlling rats, but it's not just these methods. It's not just the the war against the rat, as it was called at the time. That's that's an emic term mm-hmm. used by people at the time. It's more how this very practical warfare against an animal contributed to our notions of zoonotic disease, of animal-to-human transmission, which was a very, very new thing at the time. The first book, which is by Gali Valerio, it's called Zoonosi, Malattie Transmissibili dagli Animali all'Uomo. So Zoonosis, disease is transmissible from animals to humans. And of course, plague is not included here because it wasn't known in 1894 that plague was transmissible from animals to humans, which is very telling. So yes, in the context of this project, this non-discovery by Simon has a, a very, a very interesting role both the non the actual discovery and the supposed discovery because of the of the wider pandemic context before we get into the wider pandemic idea because i think you you've just said so many interesting things there one the first being that i'm really happy that you said simon's name before i did because i was going to say simond um so i'm happy that you said it first and two Normally, I actually start off these podcasts with finding out a bit about the guests, but I was so excited by this paper and learning about how things, how how you came to think about rats in relation to disease, but also, again, just how you've unveiled to some extent or challenged kind of this really rudimentary story about how we think about the history of disease and how we came to know how disease is trans, transmitted between humans and animals. Yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic paper, and I'll definitely, you know, put a, a note in the, the show notes so that people can find it later. But before we get into kind of context of the disease, and also then in talking a bit about the, the concept that's in focus today, which is epidemiological individual. Did I say it correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I want to actually unpack both of those bits a little bit, because uh, I think it's a really exciting concept. But before we do all of that, how did you, how did you, as Christos, come to be interested in animals, disease, and and rats? How how did this kind of story start for you? It was after my degree, like my BA and MA, it's, uh, it's one degree here in Scotland in anthropology, that I was doing some fieldwork in Kyrgyzstan. And I took kind of a break from that uh, that fieldwork, which was on 
on kind of uh, witchcraft, shamanic practices, etc., to visit China, which was just across the Tian Shan Mountains. And, and that, that being uh, 2003, it was just as SARS, the SARS pandemic had ended. So I found myself in China in this kind of post-pandemic condition, which I found completely fascinating as a uh, as a reality, and I met many people, and I, I talked about this uh, uh, traveling from Xinjiang all the way to Shanghai at the time. So coming back, I decided I want to do a PhD in anthropology, focusing on medicine in, in China and on the post-SARS kind of uh, reconstruction of public health and epidemiology. And it was very fortunate that these were some very exceptional years when China was opening up as a gesture very, very time-limited uh, gesture before the Olympics of 2008. And I was allowed, which I don't think would be possible today, uh, to do my ethnography at CDC, a China CDC station in Beijing as an intern sort of thing. And while I was doing this ethnography, I was also given access to archives and libraries. And there I came across the Manchurian plague epidemic of 1910 to 11. I had never heard of that. I did. I had no idea that plague existed in the, in the 19th and, and 20th century. I had no idea that the third plague pandemic, which killed more than 12 million people, had been in place and that the Manchurian out- outbreak or epidemic was part of that. But I became really obsessed by the Manchurian epidemic. And once Mm -hmm. I finished my PhD, I got a two-year postdoc at Cambridge, where I returned to that that epidemic in Manchuria with a focus on marmots, not on rats. So in in Eurasia, as this area is called Mongolia, Transbaikalia, Manchuria, the host of plague, the natural host of plague, is the Siberian marmot, which is a species of marmots. In general, plague, Yersinia pestis, is is a bacterium which is naturally maintained in wild rodent populations. Mm-hmm. Rats are, are are not really the reservoir of the disease. They're just where humans usually get it from. And uh, Inner Asia is, is supposed to be one of the really ancient uh, foci of, of, of plague going back thousands of years. The, the anthropological, pro- because I'm an anthropologist, I'm not a historian, but I'm an anthropologist who works with, with a lot of with archives. And the problem that immediately appeared to me was that a lot of the medical literature, both from the time, from 1910, but all the way until today, assumes that Mongols and Buryats, which are the indigenous people in, in the region, have a, an ancient traditional knowledge of plague as a zoonotic disease carried by marmots. And they have an immaculate, as it were, epidemiological knowledge of how to hunt marmots without getting infected, or if they get infected, how to stop plague transmitting between humans, because usually when you get plague from marmots, the the form, the clinical form of the disease is pneumonic plague rather than bubonic. That means that the lungs are infected, and then plague becomes airborne, transmitted directly, from human to human, with a 100% mortality rate without the use of antibiotics, and often death death happening within 24 or 48 hours from the first symptoms. So it's a, it's a really brutal disease. <laughs> and as an anthropologist, this idea of an immaculate indigenous knowledge of a very complex epidemiological uh, kind of mechanism sounded immediately very, very Interesting, but also very suspicious. So I went back to the archive. I also went to Transbaikalia to do fieldwork. And that was what really brought me into plague and, and animals. To cut a long 
story short, this is an invented tradition. It was invented by first Russian colonial doctors, uh, then kind of amplified by Chinese, in effect, colonial doctors. And kind of through the misinterpretation of myths and rituals and and uh, some rather creative processes of, of understanding kind of Mongol and Buryat ways of life, you have this uh, this uh, kind of fable, if you, if you like, ethnographic and epidemiological fable, which I called the, the native or the indigenous knowledge hypothesis. Uh, so this was my first real in- research encounter with plague and animals, which uh, then led to the Visual Plague Project, which then led to the Global War Against the Rat Project. So since then, I'm just hooked with plague. I, I just love it. I can't. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is so it is so interesting. There are so many different kind of threads to pull. And I think, based on your story, I think you didn't start with animals. It wasn't as though you started your career with a, a kind of interest in animals. But I think what's what's fascinating for me in hearing your story is that the second you start to look at disease, it's almost impossible to not at some point rub up against animals in the ways in which humans and animals live aside uh, one another or alongside one another or ways in which we have conflicts or the ways in which they've been entangled in our kind of scientific quote-unquote discoveries. I myself, am, I'm not a historian, I do geography, but I entered the archives with kind of an interest in, in thinking about cows and inevitably found myself looking at disease and thinking because there are, the, it just seems like in historical documents, the second you have a sensitivity to disease or sensitivity to animals, at some point you're going to find them intersecting with one another. So it's really, it's really a fascinating project. When, when you do this kind of work and you're thinking about rats now, are you just thinking about them in terms of how they fit within a broader kind of disease idea? Or are you interested in rats as, you know, how they are impacted by by these ideas of disease? Yeah, absolutely both. I think you, it's impossible not to do the both. And, I mean, the, the, the rat question is a very different to the marmot one, because the marmot mm-hmm. is rather localized. I mean, it's a huge area, but it is still kind of localized, and and it requires this very fine historical ethnography of, of mythology and ritual, and but also a kind of a historical anthropology of myth collection by, say, Russian uh, scholars at the time, whereas the rat is a really global animal. I mean, if there is one global animal, that's the rat, both in the sense that it is found everywhere, but also that it travels in the holds of, of boats, uh, cargo or passenger boats, so it, it has a global movement uh, as well. Didn't one of your colleagues write a really fascinating paper about that, about how rats found, I think it was, was it Jules? Yes, Jules. Jules Brown? Yes. Again, another just pointing it to, to listeners. I thought that was a really fascinating paper just about how rats rats hitched rides and, and moved across the world. And again, the ways in which ships tried to kind of proof against that and were inevitably unsuccessful, that rats were far more ingenious than people had anticipated. Yes, absolutely. The the history of, of rats and shipping becomes really, really interesting from the moment when the rats come into the frame of, of bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. And that's not immediately. The, the, the third plague pandemic begins in 1894, formally speaking. Of course, it has a long, long 
epidemiological precedent in Yunnan, in the southwest of China. But the starting point is generally considered to be the outbreaks in in Canton and Hong Kong in mm-hmm. spring 1994. And from there, it spreads across the globe really, really fast. But uh, although there are some, there is some interest in rats in 1894, it takes a while for the rat to become uh, really kind of framed within the question of plague. And that's where we, we come to the question of the epidemiological individual. We can go there mm-hmm. once you're ready. But to, to go back to, to, to shipping, Jules has so the whole kind of uh, passenger or stowaway rat story and how this led to rat proofing. Rat proofing is this term for building out the rat or changing built infrastructure so that rats cannot enter or they cannot nest, etc., etc., which became very, very important by the 1910s, 1920s. And in another work, Lucas Engelman and I have examined maritime fumigation, the use and the development, the use of fumigants in order to control rats. And the book is called Sulfuric Utopias, and it's open access via MIT Press. So I'm not advertising for... (laughs) Advertise away, it sounds fascinating. (laughs) So there are all these technologies and techniques used uh, against sheep-borne rats, which have immense consequences for for international trade, for uh, quarantine policies, but also some really horrendous, if you like, unintentional consequences. Because that when once we start, when different companies develop different chemicals, different fumigants against rats, based on different chemical compounds, they develop different machines. It's a huge market, a very competitive market. Different empires and countries support different machines and different chemicals. By the 1930s, there is one chemical compound which is uh, invented and it's considered to be you know the the end of this long process of competition uh, companies chemical companies all uh, you know, eventually agree this is the best way to kill rats uh, governments also quickly employ it and this is the tragedy in this story that the chemical compound is zyklon b mm which is what will be used in Auschwitz, of course. Mm. So, wow. you know, this is horrendous end of, 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 of that story, what starts with you know, an effort to, well, to control plague, but also to stop or limit quarantines in ports and so as to foster free trade or less time wasted and, 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 and food stuff not getting moldy or rotten or whatever in the holes of, of boats ends up, you know, in the shore. It's really kind of a. I mean, I think history is kind of littered with examples of where technologies were used to, as a means of controlling animals in a variety of ways, and then used later on specific human populations. Sometimes in terms of control and and violence, and other times to assist. So, like I think even in terms of IVF, which is actually a it's a fertility treatment that was used on domesticated animals to increase production in a capitalist system that's now used to help human women get pregnant. So it's it's interesting the kind of the the, the technological slip and how because once something exists, you can't control whether it's used for good things or bad things. It just ends up being. But it really is interesting kind of how you paint this this era of competition for how to kill how to kill rats. 
to kind of pry this apart, maybe we can talk about the concept of epidemiological individual. First, could you tell us what does what is epidemiology? And then I've got to admit, I didn't know that this was a word. I didn't know individual was a word. I, I sat, because I know individual is a word. I, I just never knew that individual was its own word. So that for me was actually quite quite interesting. So if you could just tell us a little bit quickly about what those two concepts mean apart, and then we can talk about how you're trying to use it to understand the history of, of rats and disease. Great. Yes. So epidemiology is, well, it's the study of epidemics, which is, well, a term we, we all use and we all know of, unfortunately, you know, because of, uh, of, of all the things that have been happening in the past few years uh, in all our lives. Uh, well, epidemic is a, is, a, is a Greek term. Epi is onto or upon. Uh, demos is, well, formally speaking, it's the organized body of uh, of of men uh, eligible to vote and be voted, but it, you know we take it to mean the population nowadays. Mm-hmm. So it is a, a disease that that affects a, a population rather than an individual. Is it uh, only a human population when we're talking about epidemiology? Yes, if it's a, it's if it's animals, it would be an episodic. So uh, we don't use the concept of epidemiology when we're talking about diseases that spread amongst animals. Oh, yeah, we would, loosely speaking, but we wouldn't call an epidemic amongst animals an epidemic. We would call okay. it exotic. So epidemiology is kind of how we understand the various moving parts of how diseases spread. Exactly. But an epidemic is used to discuss when diseases proliferated amongst human populations, but an epizoonotic is used to discuss, in essence, an epidemic, close quotes, amongst animals. So when diseases are spreading amongst animals. And so epidemiology would be kind of a bigger a bigger concept. Usually, yes, especially when we're talking about zoonotic diseases or, or diseases that spread from animals to humans, these diseases are maintained in animal populations. So an epidemiology of plague or of anthrax or of of, you know, of rabies or of, you know, mm-hmm. or, or even malaria, you'd have mosquitoes. So you need to understand how this is maintained in the animal or insect host. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And isn't it, isn't it something like most of the diseases, uh, most of the emerging diseases, and I think most of the diseases that impact humans have historically, there is this zoonotic kind of connection. We, we don't. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then when we're speaking about individual, what, what, when you say the word individual, what does it mean? <laughs> yes, so this is this is the world. The term also exists in in various philosophies, in, including Deleuze and others. But the 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 current use in anthropology comes from the work of Marilyn Strathern, who is a, a now retired anthropologist uh, from the University of Cambridge, and she worked for many many years in Papua New Guinea, and she's really you know one of those absolutely amazing. <laughs> Uh, people who transformed anthropology and the way we think more wholly. And the idea of individual, well, I'm not going to give you the long, <laughs> very complex kind of context, how it emerged and in which debates it emerged in the 80s, but it comes to describe, by contrasting the individual who is a skin-bound kind of person, right? It's The individual is, is someone who is constituted and and constantly reconstituted through uh, relations with others. And these mm-hmm. others can be other humans, but also other animals or spirits, etc., etc. So if you want this, this entity or this person, or you want whatever you want to call it, is 
cannot be separated from the relations that institute. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Oh, I love this concept so much. So, so because an individual, I mean, I, I think I find it difficult to pry them apart because for me, I still think there is an, an individual and a, and a self and all that stuff. But then I always have kind of in square scare quotes the idea that you are never isolated or alone or freestanding so the individual the individual kind of highlights that whatever your identity is or whatever your idea of yourself is or whatever your idea of a specific person or population is it's never it's never free floating it's always been shaped and created through different relations different institutions so so is that that in an like a individual yes, is shaped by many things. It can be, become very specific in specific ethnographic contexts mm-hmm. where it was developed, of course. And but you know, if you want to use it more broadly, yes, it it contests the idea the idea of the individual in that you know the individual is always thought to be completely kind of an island mm. uh, onto herself or himself or you know. But you know, this idea of the individual is much more relational. It, and it's great. And I understand and I'm, I completely agree that using this term in the way I do is a bit risky because it's it's never been used in, in this way. But I hope that Marilyn forgives me. She's a good friend, too. I think it's quite exciting. So let's talk, let's talk about that. When you put epidemiology, which is kind of the study of how diseases come to be, and the idea of individual that people are shaped by by not just themselves, but the world around them. When you put these two together, so one of the main theses in your work is that a rat is an epidemiological individual. So what are you meaning when you when you do that? Yes, yeah, so I, I came to I came to use this notion by studying the the initial works on the rat and plague during the third pandemic, or I should say, well, yes, within the third plague pandemic, because well, first of all. I know this is not common knowledge. The rat had never been associated with any disease until uh, the midst of the 19th century. In fact, we have works that very clearly state that there are so many evils associated with the rat, especially its consumption of foodstuffs and uh, etc. But it, the rat has only has a, a redeeming characteristic in that it's free of disease in the West believed until the uh, mid-end of the 19th century. Then in already by 1840, 1850, we, we start having a trickle of literature coming from the Indian Himalayas, uh, a British colonial medical literature, mentioning that people uh, in air, up in the Himalayas, uh, in areas that were affected by, by what the British believed to be plague, described rats dying before humans. So we have kind of a trickle of 
of medical debate there. And there is an article, uh, again, it's open access in the journal Medical Anthropology called Mahamari Plague, where I, I discuss this uh, this literature. Uh, but it is it never becomes central. No one ever extrapolates from that that rats are actually carriers or spreaders of the disease. The conclusion these doctors come to is quite, I think it's very characteristic of their epistemological framework because they say, well, imagine they think that plague is a miasmatic is a miasmatic disease. They think it's kind of telluric gases emanating from the ground and, and which become trapped in houses, which because they, they think these houses are not ventilated, they become even the air becomes even more vitiated and hence of the disease. So they say, well, imagine how how vitiated the air is that even rats die of plague. <laughs> so, because miasma theory was kind of the predominant idea before germs were readily understood, right? So, so I think a lot of people don't realize that germs and germ theory was a relatively new invention, quote unquote. So that that previous to then, the understanding of how disease spread, as you say, was through bad air. So rats here weren't vilified or even understood or constituted, to use your language earlier, they weren't constituted as disease carriers or spreaders or villains or pests. They were constituted as hardy survivors. Yeah, vermin for sure, but hardy survivors because that logic went, well, rats live in the sewers of Paris and London. There can be no more vitiated and, and miasmatic place than that. So imagine that, you know, how vitiated, you know, the the air is in that context. And of course, this is a way to frame indigenous life as dirty and etc., etc., etc. You know, this is a very colonial framework that even rats die. So this is a way of pathologizing indigenous life up in the Himalayas. The, in, the index of, of, of filth you know, as which would be the word that they would use, or of vitiated there would become the rat, because the rat is seen to be so resistant to that that you know, if if there if even the rat dies, this is a completely fetid uh, environment. See. In the okay. So they use kind of their understandings of rats from colonizers use their understandings of rats in their own situation, saw them dying in other places, and then used that is a way to mobilize and create framings of indigenous people as being dirty or... Absolutely, or, yes. okay. and, and implement very, very violent, intrusive interventions into their ways of life, into their ways of dwelling, etc., etc. Then in the 1870s, we have a second episode of rats being associated with plague, and this time in Yunnan, which is the actual starting point of the third plague pandemic. And this is on the part of French missionaries, uh, that describe rats as dying, but in a paper which has not been published yet, I again try to explain that here the role of the rat is is the rat is not actually framed as being the source of the disease. It is more or less rendered into a, an apocalyptic symbol. So, in which it's a very long story, but the missionaries there were trying to weave together a story of, of warfare. There was a, a, an enormous Muslim uprising in the region at the time, famine and plague, so as to create this image of apocalyptic times for which there was only one resolution, Catholicism and French colonialism. So again, the rat is described, but it's not a story of 
it's not an epidemiological story, really. It's a religious story. It's a, it's an apocalyptic, it's an end-of-the-world story. So the rat really starts becoming framed uh, epidemiologically as being related to the disease with the 1895. 1894 outbreak of plague in Hong Kong, where the plague bacterium is discovered by uh, Alexander Hirsan, again a Pasteurian doctor, and he muses about the rat. He he doesn't actually study it. He has several ideas about the rat that it could be implicated, but he's also very very much convinced that the the true carrier of plague, the true reservoir of plague, is the soil. And this fits very well with Pasteurian ideas of attenuation and and virulence and recrudescence. It's a it's a very interesting story, this the story of soil. And it's not just an idle theory, it has very, very concrete effects on the ground, from raising down entire areas to um, uh, removing the soil from the floors of houses and baking it so as to disinfect. To torching cities or, or, or towns down. To... So these were competing theories for trying to explain the plague. Yes. So here is where I think that is the historical given that we have some mistaken theories, such as the soil or or rags or clothes or the alimentary theory that humans contract plague by eating contaminated foods mm-hmm. or human human infection and then we have the correct theory you know which is the rat and its flea which eventually prevails okay and i think this is a completely you know mistaken way of looking at things if you actually go to the archives and you start with the really big outbreak which begins in india in 1896 and that it rolls on for years and years. In India alone, there it will lead to more than 10 million deaths. There, you see that people are not so much interested in identifying, in singling out the source, whether this is the soil or humans or rats or other animals or or dirty clothes or or whatever. They're interested in relating things. They're interested in exploring the relation between different things, the relation between rats and grain and the soil, the relation between clothes and the soil, the relation between this, that, and the other. And that's what leads me to think that, you know, at that point, what we have is the emergence of the rat. Yes, there is an increasing interest in the rat. Uh, but But the effort is not to you know, isolate the rat and identify it using bacteriology as the one and only host of the disease. The interest is with relating the rat to other possible agents, and this is a term they would use, Mm -hmm. agents of plague. So here, I think this is, this goes against the, you know, a much broader, very prevalent view of the development of science and of medicine which, based on uh, Bruno Latour's pasteurization of France, that book from the 80s, has this idea at its heart that bacteriology is something that transforms everything. Bacteriology is 
is a discipline or a science that identifies, that gives uh, ontological solidity by singling out and identifying bacteria, hosts, vectors. And I think this is a completely mistaken understanding. So we've been speaking about epidemiological individual, and there's this kind of main idea that there were competing theories, and one theory won out, which was that fleas who fleas are actually the ones that translate the disease and that there's this flea-rat relation and that's how the disease is spreading around the world. But what you're saying is that actually at the time it wasn't competition for theories necessarily, but it was kind of a almost trying to understand the ecology of disease, trying to understand the different relationships that create diseases. And this was the dominant understanding. But how history has been written, the ways in which we've come to understand history and tell the story, it's kind of solidified this idea that there was one specific narrative. So before before we get, because uh, we, we're marching on with time, and I think, um, and I want to I finish this, this conversation because I think it's important and really interesting. So if, if, if you've got a spot of time to just sit with me with it for a bit, but... So what is it that you're saying here, epidemiological individual? Is the rat an epidemiological individual or is the understanding of the disease that there are many? Yeah, I'm, 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 not, I'm just not quite grasping what that, how, how that connection is being made. I think in, in its ethnographic historical context, say in 1896, 1898, India, and in many other areas subsequently where plague would spread, for for a period of time, it is the rat is an epidemiological individual in the mind of doctors, public health officers. It is something which is constituted through its relation with other things. You know, it's not meaningful to study the rat alone. Rat is mm-hmm. is a meaningful agent of plague only in relation to other potential or real uh, mm-hmm. agents of plague, such as grain or the soil. And the soil, as well, if you if you want to talk about the soil, is also an epidemiological individual, right? Okay. And, and grain is also an epidemiological individual in the mind of public health officers and doctors at the time. But I think the, this ethnographic fact, if you like, this historical ethnographic fact, points, as, as you very well said, to, you know, it's a kind of um, very useful to us today as well. Why? Because... Following that period of different different agents, as they were called, being uh, constituted through, through their relation with other agents, followed a period of time, and there the Latourian model works, where there is an obsession with identification. Uh, and the rat becomes singled out, the rat and its fleas become singled out as the protagonist of plague. And that's around 1900 uh, when this begins. And it doesn't have to do so much with epidemi- with, with bacteriology. It doesn't have so, uh, so much to do with the supposed discovery by Paul-Louis Simon um, of the flea mechanism, as with uh, these uh, technologies that we talked about earlier of controlling rats, especially the fumigation technologies. Why? Because... With plague becoming really global by 1900, so if you if you place yourself in 1900, there are outbreaks of plague everywhere, in every inhabited continent, in every major, almost every major city and port in the world. There are time and again plague outbreaks, and this causes havoc, not not only a, a lot of uh, 
uh, not in, only in terms of public health, but also in terms of trade. Because plague is one of these diseases that absolutely immobilizes world trade at the time, which is maritime. So it, it, it immobilizes it because there are very strict rules, very strict quarantine uh, policies and competing quarantine policies. So rival empires are, you know, are fighting against one another, a trade war, as it mm-hmm. were, by using quarantine regulations. So the Ottoman Empire is famous for that. It really kind of maximizes, you know, it has a maximalist quarantine uh, policy just to piss the British off, just to harm the British Empire, right? Uh, so uh, <laughs> just to piss the British off. That sounds like a T-shirt. I just walk around. This is nothing but just to piss the British off. <laughs> It actually, it almost feels like that when you read the archive. Right? It's like they're finding a way because there is a British delegate there, a quite famous guy, Frank Clemo, and it's as if the the Ottomans are really trying. You know, they have found a way to really make him, you know, desperate and angry. And they they always manage to do that using scientific literature and scientific ideas, which the British cannot actually disagree with. The, the British are actually asking of the British, the Ottoman Empire, to become more scientific. That's the whole narrative, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So Ottoman Empire obliges and becomes so, you know, scientific in a very specific way so that British trade is harmed. Very incredibly clever. Fascinating, yeah. Yeah, so within this trade war, identifying the rat as the protagonist and its fleas uh, as the protagonist of the global spread of plague is something which allows different countries to adopt policies which limit the effects of and the harmful effects for trade of quarantines. Because the promise of fumigation, which involves a boat arriving in a harbor, being fumigated for 24 to 48 hours, and then everything can be unloaded, the cargo is completely disinfected. The rats are all dead, in theory, of course. Mm-hmm. In, in reality, they're not. Uh, these machines never quite work. And so, you know, you don't have to quarantine the boat. You just have to station it for 24 hours, fumigate it, and then trade can continue. So this is kind of a miraculous technology and a lucrative one because you have all these different companies making millions out of these machines and these chemical compounds. You have an entire army of, of personnel employed in harbors. You have obviously huge amounts of corruption involved, <laughs> you know, between yeah. officers and companies and what have you. So it's it, it's a whole economic cycle there, and it's within that economic operation and its imperialist antagonism that the rat really becomes solidified as the agent, the protagonist of plague. It doesn't have to do so much with the science. It has to do with trade and inter-imperial antagonism. So, you know, of course, science plays a role, and then science yeah. plays a role in in validating this, in, in giving it, you know, kind of a, not, not just a cover, but, you know, it really goes deep Structure. into it. Yeah, it gives explanations. And then there is a lot of funding for for the scientific study of rats. The second plague Indian commission does an incredible job in in a very, very meticulous study of rats and fleas, which validates the rat in the eyes of the majority of the world as the one and only, you know, responsible for plague. So you have this slogan, no rats, no plague. Right. So this is the period of the rat as 
no longer a individual, but an individual, the protagonist. This is, I really see, and, and you know, earlier on we spoke, uh, you know, that you can't do a history of animals without rubbing up against disease, and often you can't do a history of disease without rubbing up against animals. But the same goes for economy and money, that almost invariably when you have these conversations, money is lurking there as well. And I think that you've just pointed to a really important set of of things. And I mean, this had coming back to, to animals and rats themselves, you know, labeling them as the enemy number one. And this is in a, in a previous conversation with Lauren Van Patta for the same season, we spoke about invasive and feral species, that when you get labeled as a invader, or, or as a problem, you become a target of extreme campaigns like fumigation, extermination, and this has a variety of impacts for the individual rats involved, certainly for their families and social networks as, as rats, for the ecologies that they come from and that they're part of, because if you've been poisoned and you die, then, you know, other animals. So the, the kind of ramifications of creating this villain, this individual villain at the species level of containing, I guess that's what it is, is it's the containment of threat to a specific species. And it kind of, we lose a lot of that nuance. And what I find really interesting about hearing you speak now and, and perhaps and maybe just making connections to how epidemiological individual would be useful beyond rats, right? Beyond, I think, for animal studies scholars generally, the the context that we're in now, there's a lot of talk about One Health, for example, in terms of ecologies, in terms of understanding how diseases, diseases spread and move. And there's perhaps more of a sensitivity now to zoonosis than ever before. But again, I think we have to guard against this kind of vilification of certain animals. You saw it happening with bats. You know, you, ha you had a lot of bat ecologists at the beginning of COVID-19 coming out saying, bats are not bad. You know, don't go out and kill them because as soon as it's a simple story, it's a simple story about a very complex set of arrangements and animals often get the short stick where they're blamed for, for disease and then they get exterminated. No, absolutely. I, I agree. That's why I like this concept, because I think that on the one hand, it describes an, you know, a historical ethnographic reality. But on the other hand, it is a useful concept for us mm. today. And I think to some to some extent in in the 30s, around the 30s, there is a re-individualization, re if you like, of the rat. It is re-related to things because we have the emergence of ideas about disease ecology for the first time. We have a, the emergence of ideas about sylvatic plague, so plague which is maintained, harbored and spread by wild rodents. In reality, plague is harbored by at least 200 animals across the globe. Mm -hmm. And so there is a re-relation of the rat. But in some contexts, this, this has a practical effect. But by the 30s, the third plague pandemic has, you know, it's kind of withering. It's not as prolific anymore. So it's mainly a scientific project now, you know, to re-relate the rat in its ecological complexity in relation to the disease. But as you say, for today's concern about zoonosis, I think the idea of the epidemiological individual allows us to understand animals which may carry disease, which may be reservoirs of disease or may just carry the disease for a short period or mid-period of time, no longer as villains, which is what this global war against the rat did. It was, you know, this vilification of, of the rat as, as you say, enemy number one. And, and, and see this in a much more relational way, in a way which sees a disease in its true ecological 
reality as as something which is maintained and yes also transmitted eventually or some not eventually but sometimes you know within very complex interrelations between animals different species of animals environments social practices interspecies relations etc but if i if we have one a few minutes left i want to return to this uh, what you mentioned the invasive species because this is very important the rat was vilified in these decades when it became the enemy precisely because it 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 was seen as a as a par excellence migratory animal so there is this idea of the migrant rat the migratory rat and you can imagine all the horrific cartoons that kind of accompanied that very xenophobic i mean the third plague pandemic is is hugely uh, xenophobic kind of event there is this constant vilification of asian people etc etc so you have this entanglement of ideas about migrants and rats as spreading the disease and this creates also many misunderstandings of of the rat in a purely biological sense so there is this this fantasy that the rat is a, is a great uh, land-based migrant as it would be called so that it it travels long distances over land hence spreading plague from village to village things like that which are obviously not true right so Yes, the idea of invasiveness uh, is uh, and and migration within yeah. xenophobic frameworks plays a very important role. And kind of the history of, I think, race relations and, and xenophobia, again, like all of the things that you've been bringing up in this conversation here, disease, animals, economies, and race relations, that this was very much also part of a scientific, you know, often colonial ex- exploitation of, of going out and getting not only land, but also supposed knowledge that could be obtained from these supposedly exotic, in quotes, or distant lands that harbored threats and danger, but also adventure. All of this is happening under a very kind of specific idea of, of uh, you know, I spoke to Steve Hinchcliffe at the beginning of this season, and uh, or Hinchcliffe, sorry, it's not Cliff, he corrected me, <laughs> that this idea that somehow threat is outside coming in, you know, you can definitely see how, and it continues to be used in in very... The, the language we use of, of migrants, but also of specific animals flooding areas. It's pervasive, really. It, it sits underlined. And something we, we're not going to have the time to, to get into now before we get to your quote, but I just want to flag as well, is we've spoken here about, you know, how ideas of the rat have positioned them. They were in relation to a variety of diseases, but have positioned them as kind of enemy number one, as you've said, and that that resulted in a variety of kind of practices against them, including fumigation, but another end of the story that we haven't had a chance to get to, but I wanted to flag, is that it also resulted in them being tested on in labs in greater kind of, you know, they 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 ended up being introduced and understood increasingly as a scientific object that could be studied and researched. So that and and we see that still today with rats and mice still being one of the most prolific scientific objects. Yes, I think people don't realize the extent of of lab testing for rats at the at the peak of the global war against the rats. So you take your average town or city, you would usually have a lab which is dedicated to the examination of, of, of rats, live or dead, and it would process, you know, an average town, it could it could be as much as three and a half thousand rats per month, you know, depending on where on where you are. Right? We're talking thousands and thousands of 
rats, millions of rats on a global mm-hmm. level being examined in the lab. You know, which is yeah. the first time I think I may. <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm not a, a historian of laboratory science, but I think it's probably the first time where we have such enormous quantities of an animal passing through labs across the globe and becoming subjected, both live and dead, to different sorts of testing. And then, of course, that changes over time and we get to a place now where people are growing human ears on the backs of rats, you know, so like it is something that's deserving of of more attention. And in terms of thinking about this as a rat history, you know, you could see if 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 we were to kind of put time or temporal markers on the history of rats, how they might understand it. The bubonic plague might not have might have been a moment of death for them, but also a moment of, you know, when they were increasingly imprisoned in, in lab sciences and, and subjected to a variety of, of actions. But Christos, I'm going to stop us. Let's yes. let's hear your, your quote, and then we're going to wrap up with hearing a bit about what you're working on. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I want to, to end up with something which I know it, op- it opens up more, even more, more, more questions. But I would say as a quote that uh, we may not know when the when the rat got plague, in that we don't know when when, when rats started carrying the disease, but at least we know when plague got rats. And that's in 1894 onwards. In Mm -hmm. other words, that plague started becoming associated with rats only very, very recently. And this is something we need to keep in mind, and we need to explore its consequences, not only with regards to plague or even urban planning and architecture relating to to rat proofing, but its wider uh, impact on how we understand animal-to-human infection and animal-to-human relations. And is that quote from your from your work? Yeah, that's just out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so folks need to write it down and quote the podcast. It will be in my in my in my book, which will be called How Plague Got Rats. How Plague Got Rats. Okay, well great. I like that. This is a future quote. Okay. First on the animal turn. I like that. And and the idea of trying to kind of trace back a starting point, we've got this obsession with trying to trace things back all the way to the beginning. But rats, thinking about when the disease got rats is really fascinating. So we know that you're working on the war on rats. And you did mention that you've recently published a book looking at the visual representations of pandemics or of disease, which just looks fascinating. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about what you're working on or what you've got up in future? And if people are interested in getting in touch with you, how they can do that? Sure, yes. So, well, the, the Global War Against the Rat still has uh, three years to go as a project, so I'll be working on that for the foreseeable future. I'm just back from a, a research trip in Argentina, in the northwest, uh, the Andean provinces, looking at what in the 30s was known as rural plague up there and the relation of rats to to other, well, wild rodents. and. I'm developing with Mateus Duarte da Silva a comparative paper on how Brazilian scientists understood rural plague and how Argentinian scientists understood rural plague at the time. So uh, this is my first foray into kind of Latin American territory, so I'm a bit nervous. It's not really my region. <laughs> you know, I'm usually China-India uh, focused. I'd love but... to see a map of this because a lot of what we've been speaking about today is you've, you've mentioned plague and several types of plagues and where they emerged and where they became important at different times. And there definitely seems to be quite a clear geography here, you know, different plagues having different names based on where they are. 
Yeah, it would be it would be fascinating to see. It's so cool. The the book, the Visual Plague book, it's called Visual Plague, which will be open access. It's coming out next week, I think. Uh, has a chapter on on rat photography during the oh. third pandemic. So people may be interested in reading that. Uh, it's rat from the lab all the way to rat proofing and ratter dogs and all these methods used, uh, but how they were visualized in in both scientific uh, publications and in in the illustrated press and the daily press. Fascinating stuff. And if people want to get in touch with you, how do they find you? Uh, they can contact me through my uh, Twitter account, which is predictably Visual Plague. <laughs> uh, predictably, it's a great name. It's a great name. <laughs> or uh, they can look up my uh, webpage on the University of St. Andrews' uh, Department of Social Anthropology, where they can find my email address. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your thoughts. I really think epidemiological individual, while difficult to say, I think is really useful for thinking through how animals, disease, economies, race, colonial relations, histories all kind of mixed together and then through power relations as well. So thank you so much for for your thoughts, for your ideas and for, for spending some time with me here today. Thank you so much, Claudia. It was a real pleasure and and, and you made me think of, of things in new ways. So thank you very much for that. It's amazing. Hey, Mandy, welcome back to the Animal Highlight. Hi, thanks for having me again. Of course. You're going to be with me for the next 10 episodes or at least 10 Maybe I'll be able to rope you in for more in future. Who knows? So we're on the fourth episode, if you can believe it. Time is really flying by. Who are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, so today I'm discussing mosquitoes. And for anyone who might be interested, I drew a lot from the book Mosquito by Richard Jones and also a bit from the book Superfly by Jonathan Balcombe, which is fabulous. Yeah, Jonathan Balcombe. Could gush about him for days. Oh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Go listen to his episode if you haven't listened to the episode with Jonathan. He's really fantastic. So to begin, I want to start with the 2021 Center for Disease Control's World Mosquito Day campaign, which claimed that mosquitoes cause more death and disease than any other animal on the planet. And it's true that mosquito-borne illnesses have a devastating toll on humans. According to the World Health Organization, an estimated 627,000 people died of malaria alone in 2020. And enormous human loss comes from mosquito-borne illnesses, just enormous. I don't want to erase or minimize this, but do want to consider today what happens when we critically engage with this biosecurity issue through a multi-species lens. So a critical multi-species lens can encourage us to more expansively question who's harmed, who's blamed, who's excluded, and who's protected in biosecurity discourses and practices. So, for example, the amazing work of Neil Ahuja considers how portraying mosquitoes as our enemies obscures the fact that colonialism is the key driver of malarial outbreaks around the world. A multi-species lens can also help us to consider the countless animal lives that are violently eradicated in the name of biosecurity and malaria prevention. So 
just one of the methods of mosquito eradication that's been used is the use of large scale um, or the large scale use of insecticides, including DDT. And these chemicals have really devastating impacts on entire ecosystems, but of course, also in the mosquitoes who are being targeted. So let's hone in a bit and take a closer look at what mosquito worlds are actually being eradicated in the name of biosecurity. So when many of us think of mosquitoes, we think of them as this undifferentiable mass of biting pests, but there's actually incredible diversity among them. There's over 3,500 species of mosquitoes in the world, and these mosquito species have different preferences for feeding, breeding, flying, where they roost, biting, geographic location. And aside from the species diversity, there's also individual diversity. It's estimated that at any given time, there's roughly 110 trillion mosquitoes on Earth, which is a scale I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. I can barely count, like I can barely imagine what a hundred of anything <laughs> looks like. So now you start talking to me about like a trillion. Oh, Goodness totally. Gracious. It's so outside the scope of what I can comprehend. Uh, but then each of these 110 trillion is a unique individual. So we have immense mm. mosquito diversity on both species and individual levels that is destroyed when humans kill them. And the mosquitoes who humans encounter when we get bitten are only a small fraction of the world's mosquitoes. Most adult mosquitoes consume plant nectar, but in fact, it's only female adult mosquitoes of certain species who consume protein-rich blood at a specific life stage so they can develop their eggs. And many of these mosquitoes who feed on blood feed on blood other than human blood. Having said that, I still think it's really worth taking a closer look at when mosquitoes bite humans for two reasons. Not only is this how infected mosquitoes transmit malaria and other illnesses to humans, but it's also an interesting entry point for thinking about mosquitoes' sensory and phenomenological worlds. Now, mosquitoes have incredible senses of smell, they can hunt pulses of CO2 that we exhale, as well as detect specific chemical components of our body odor. And once they've tracked our scent and closed in on their desired human target, who is roughly 100 million times bigger than them, they often need to maneuver around moving or swatting limbs. So just imagine for a sec what that experience must be like for a mosquito being swatted at by this being of absolutely celestial proportions compared to them. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, wild. It's a good point. Uh, this contrast in scales is so mind-boggling. A study done on the 80s Aegypti mosquito found that they remember the experience of swats and near misses along with the associated scent, and then they're able to make decisions to move to safer locations or targets. So not only are they scent tracking, but they're evading, they're remembering, they're minimizing risks. They have these wings that allow them to make really nuanced maneuvers. And then these impact-absorbing legs, that means they're capable of doing these really light touchdowns undetected. 
And now for the exciting part, the bite. (laughs) So a female mosquito's beak is mainly a sheath that protects the inner lance, which is what does the penetrating. And the lance actually consists of six interlocking blades. Four of these are sawtoothed at the tip. (laughs) So, oh, I know. I always had this thought, this... (laughs) image in my mind of them kind of it it being a delicate operation where they would delicately slide this fine needle into our flesh but now I kind of imagine them as these little sawing lumberjacks (laughs) and one of these blades one of the six interlocking blades has a tube for injecting a lubricating saliva and the saliva has anticoagulant properties It's also what causes many of us to develop itchy bumps in reaction. Um, And then at the center of it all, there's this straw-like blood-sucking tongue. So clearly there's a lot going on when a mosquito bites a human. This typically all takes place in two and a half to three minutes. And in this time, mosquitoes drink just a fraction of a drop of blood. What's a minuscule amount to us is a full meal to them. It's truly, really remarkable how biting mosquitoes employ such physical finesse and coordination, all while dining from beings who are absolutely massive in comparison to them. And I think that even just limiting ourselves to thinking about when mosquitoes bite humans, that interaction of the bite we get already a glimpse of the incredible richness of mosquitoes' sensory and phenomenological experiences. And we can begin to gain a better appreciation for these mosquito worlds that are entirely ignored and violently destroyed within dominant biosecurity discourses and practices. It's incredible. And I think mosquitoes are really uh, amazing to to focus on for a number of reasons. I know there's been several different campaigns trying to control mosquito populations, one of them being kind of um, related to the reproduction of mosquitoes so that they, they're not able to reproduce. Um, and I'm always, I think, a bit cautious because I understand, as you said, I think rightfully so at the beginning of your highlights, this is really an important, um, it's an important matter for many people who suffer from the disease. And it's one of these malaria should not be killing as many people as it still is. It's, it's you know, um, and the the geographical nature of who dies from the disease is really a, a matter of concern, right? It shows that there's been kind of a, a willful neglect of a specific part of the world. But that said, I'm also always mindful of the kind of interventions into mosquitoes' lives uh, for for these measures, not only because of how it disrupts mosquitoes' own life worlds and the ways in which they experience the world, but also for the unforeseen circumstances and things that could emanate from that. So what does it mean to all of a sudden remove the ability for a specific species to reproduce what does it mean for the broader ecology what what you know people did this with rats as well they were like oh let's exterminate uh, rats or let's remove cats from cities and then they realize oh wait now we've got more rats you know there's there's um this this willingness to kind of control uh, and this want to control which i know lauren spoke about in, in her episode um that really deserves a bit more of a pause uh, and and yeah, just to take a bit more consideration of the, the the incredibleness of insects, they really are quite remarkable. I think ants ants might be one of my favourite in the in the world. But before I get um, 
too swept up in the beauty of ants who can hold on to glass and do incredible feats. Um, let me just say thank you so much for, for joining us today on the Animal Highlight and uh, I look forward to hearing who comes up next. Thank you. Huge thank you to Christos for being a fantastic guest, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music, to Animals in Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, as well as to Biosecurities and Urban Governance Research Collective for sponsoring this season. If you haven't already, go check out their websites. There's tons of interesting stuff there to learn and read more about. I also want to say a big, big thank you to Christian Mentz, who's recently joined my team of one, um, to help with the editing. And uh, we're, we're slowly building up. So thank you so much, Christian, as well, for all of the work that you're doing. And as always, thank you, dear listeners, for listening, for tuning in, for leaving reviews, for getting in touch. I really do appreciate it all. Uh, so thank you, and I hope you have a fantastic day. This is The Auto with me, Tonya Hutton-Felder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!